Welcome to the King's Chapel Podcast. You are about to hear another inspirational message from our lead pastor, Matt Schmidley. It's our prayer that this message will be a blessing and encouragement to your life. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and you thought that was Christmas. It's not. It's March Madness. <laughs> I didn't know who this team was until uh, two days ago. I had never heard of UMBC. Apparently, that stands for the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. They are the retrievers for the uh, Chesapeake Bay Retrievers, and they were a 16 seed taking on the number one seed in the whole tournament, University of Virginia. Now, in the, uh, in this, in the larger format, 64-team format, if you're not a sports person, just hang with me, 64-team format, a, a one seed has never lost to a 16 seed. Two seeds have lost to 15s. Missouri fans grown with me from uh, Norfolk State a few years ago. But a 16 has never, ever beat a one until Friday night. When the UMBC Retrievers overcame the University of Virginia Cavaliers and not just beat them, beat them 74 to 54, beat them by 20 points. It was a route. I mean, I'm, I'm watching it, you know, it's, I'm watching a different game. I can see the score going on, and, and uh, it's about halfway through the third, halfway through the second half, and the lead is growing, and I'm like, I have got to watch this. And here they are, this, this, this plucky team who, who wasn't even supposed to win their conference tournament to get into the big tournament is now taking on Kansas State today, um, the first ever 16 seed to win and advance to the round of 32. It is indeed the most wonderful time of the year. Turn with me to um, Matthew chapter 13. We've been going through the book of Matthew together, verse by verse. We're at Matthew chapter 13. And Matthew chapter 13 is a series of parables where Jesus is explaining. There's a common thread that goes through these parables, the parable of the sower, the parable of the, the, the wheat and the weeds. Um, today we're going to see the parable of the grain of mustard seed and the yeast, um, the, uh, the parable of the pearl of great price. All of these parables really have a common theme, and the theme is this, reactions and receptions to Jesus. If you remember, chapter 12 was about um, the Pharisees and the religious leaders rejecting Jesus, calling his work the work of Beelzebub. And Matthew chapter 13 is now, Jesus is telling a series of parables talking about how people responded to the message. And so the parable of the sower was really about the different responses that people had. Last week, as we saw uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, that was really answering the question, well, if, if, this, um, if this kingdom has really begun in Jesus, why hasn't he dealt with his opponents? I mean, God had this great history of really cool ways of disposing of people who opposed him. I mean, there are floods, there are, you know, earth opening up, there are fire coming down from heaven on Mount Baal, or on Mount Carmel. There are all these things. God has very good ways of disposing of, of people who are rebellious and so the question last week was, if Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom, 
why are all these people who um, are disbelieving and speaking against him, why has the fire not come down? And we saw last week that, that uh, Jesus is waiting until the, the end of the age. We've got some audio issues in the back. We'll get that fixed. So this week, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast, I think are really answering this question when it comes to the resp- response of Jesus, and it's this. If the kingdom of God has really been inaugurated in Jesus, why have so few people believed? If the kingdom of God really has begun, if it really is here, Jesus announcing the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is among you, then why is it, as Matthew is writing his gospel a couple of decades later, the question would have been among the early church, if this, if this really is true, if, if this really is the kingdom of God, why are, there, why are we just meeting in a house? Where is everybody? I mean, all of these other people who disbelieve, they, they all can't be wrong, right? And so, Jesus tells two parables that are really telling the same point. Verse number 31. And he put another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So two parables, two, one probably directed more toward men of their day, one directed probably more toward the women of the day, one about a mustard seed, and one about leaven. Now, if you've never seen a mustard seed, if you're not a cook or whatever, mustard seeds, we've got a picture here, I mean, they're just, they're, they're little bitty. Tiny, tiny, tiny. And there were different mustard plants that grew. Some of them grew into trees, something kind of like this. Some of them were, were maybe a bush that was 10 to 12 feet tall. And so, compared to trees, 10 or 12 feet is not that big, but it mentions garden plants. So, if you're talking about garden plants, uh, 10 or 12 feet is pretty big for, for a garden plant, big enough that, that birds could land or make nests. And so, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like... It's like a mustard seed that you plant in a garden, and it becomes a tree. The kingdom of heaven is like, ladies, it's like, it's like if you took leaven, and, and notice here it says, you read this, it says three measures of flour. What, what does that mean? It's like 50 to 60 pounds. In fact, I almost bought a bag and set it up here. This is, this is not you're making your, your daily bread. They said that this three measures of flour would probably feed about 100 people. So this is like, you know, you're, you're making bread for the wedding. I mean, you're, you're making your, your bread for a big party. And the point is that is, is the way they would bake bread at the time, is you probably, I'm sure you know this, they didn't have yeast packets back then. Um, so what they would do is they would, when they would make the dough, they would let it rise and ferment. And then when it was done, they would take a little piece of dough, they'd take it and set it aside, and they'd set it aside, and then that would be the, the yeast, the starter, the leaven for the next day's bread. Um, yeast is not a very pleasant thing. At one time, I decided to make my own sourdough starter. That stuff stinks when you're making it. I mean, it's just 
smells like vomit. Um, <laughs> really does. And so, but they would take that. They'd take a little piece and set it aside. And so Jesus is saying, if you take your little piece of yeast, your little piece of leaven that you, you set aside, even if you're making bread for 100 people, you put that little bit of yeast in there, and it's eventually going, I can't imagine how big 60 pounds of flour would be, dough, when it, when it would rise. But you could put that little thing in there, and it's going to spread throughout the whole lump. The kingdom of heaven is like a tree. It grows. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven in a lump. It spreads. And the people of, of Matthew's day were maybe looking around and saying, well, if the kingdom is here, if Jesus really is inaugurating the kingdom, then where is everybody? It's just us. And so today we're going to walk through how the church went from a mustard seed to a tree. Today's going to be a little information heavy. If you feel like, uh, if, if you like lectures and like to learn things, this is right up your alley. If, uh, if you like uh, hellfire and brimstone, then you'll have to come back. Well, I don't really do hellfire and brimstone very well. Um, this is going to be a little information heavy, but we're going to track through exactly what happened. So turn with me to start, and I didn't put this one on the screen, so you'll just have to trust me. Turn to the, book of, the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. So, so, you know, Jesus tells these parables. Let's look at how the book of Matthew ends, starting at verse number 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. There's the key phrase. All nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. So, those of us who are living in the age of the tree and not of the mustard seed, the the irony of this misses us sometimes. Matthew records, and and there may have been a larger crowd, but Matthew records the, the 11. Think about this with me. You know, if I were to take 11 of you, bring you up here, and say, all right, here's what we're going to do. You 11, you're going to evangelize the whole world. Ready? Go. I mean, that just seems preposterous. That's like, there's no way that would happen. Like, honestly, there, there would just be no way that that, that would be like a, a 16 seed beating a 1 seed, right? That would be like... That would be like saying to UMBC, not only are you going to beat Virginia, you're going to win the whole national championship. Now, I can get behind UMBC beating Virginia, but if you say, hey, you know, if you were a betting man, would you bet money that they're going to win the whole thing? (laughs) No, they're not going to beat K-State today. They'll all be rooting for them. It's, you know, almost definitely not going to happen. And that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus is telling these 11 guys, all right. You guys still kind of smell like fish, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to go out, and you're going to make disciples of all nations. It's a good one, Jesus. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. 
picking up at verse number 4. This is kind of in the same vein that we were just reading. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when they come together, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has put in his own authority. So here, here it is. So now Jesus is, he says, go to Jerusalem. Wait there. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And they're like, all right. Does it go time now? Is, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Is this, is this when this thing goes viral? Is this when this thing goes big? And it's not. Look down at verse number 12. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room and where they were staying, Peter and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, all those, they were all together in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. All these were in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So it's more than 11, right? But it's still, you know, maybe double what we have in here, maybe not quite double, maybe a little less than double, but, you know, 120 people. This is the man who fed multitudes. This is, and now all that's left, if you were to, if you were to, part, if you were to chart Jesus on a, uh, on a graph, you know, he has reached his peak, and this has gone downhill, 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 and now there are just 120 left. Jesus, if you really are announcing the kingdom of God, where is everybody? Why is there just 100 and 20. Now flip over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Pick up at verse number 1. It says, right after the stoning of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And all, or they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So here's what happened. Here's, here's a map if you're curious. Here's what happened. Here's Jerusalem. This isn't even a big enough map to see Galilee, all right? Here's Jerusalem. Galilee, was, you can kind of see the Sea of Galilee right there. So Galilee is up here. This is, not, this is not a big area. So the church spreads, the Christians spread from Jerusalem to the region of Samaria and the region of Judea, doing that after the stoning of Stephen. It had become too dangerous to stay in Jerusalem. And so the church begins to spread like leaven. The church begins to grow like a tree, branching from this little seed, this little mustard seed in Jerusalem, and spreading to just, just the surrounding areas, just you know, a few dozen miles outside of what was going on. Now, turn with me to Acts 13. Acts 13. Verse 
What had happened now was the church had, had spread some more. There was now a church um, in Antioch that was going to become uh, eventually the, the, uh, the center of the mission to the Gentiles. But for now, it's just, it's just a church in Antioch. In verse number 2, it says, And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. So, give you an idea of what's going on here. So here's, here's Judea right here, and here's that area where it had spread to. By now, there's a church here in Antioch and other places. But this is what's going on. The church was here, and Paul, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So Barnabas and Saul head from Antioch down to the port, and they're going to go on this first trip headed to Cyprus. And then they're going to spend some time here in Asia Minor, just, just a little short trip, just, you know, walking through Turkey, you know, not a big deal. Um, but, but making this little, this little loop um, and heading back to Antioch. So kind of going through Turkey. That's the first trip. Now, the second trip goes a little bit farther. They start here back at Antioch. They go through um, these regions that they had been through again. And then something interesting happens. You, you, can re- you know the story in Acts. You can read it. The Holy Spirit says, don't preach the gospel in Asia. Okay? So here's Asia. That's a big area. Don't pre- this is Asia Minor, not like the continent. Don't preach the gospel in Asia. So they travel through, travel through, travel through, and get to the coast right here at Troas. Now where do we go? We, we just, the Holy Spirit said, don't preach in Asia. And we went all the way through, and now we're here. And that's where they have a dream of a man from Macedonia calling for help. Well, where's Macedonia? Macedonia is this next peninsula right here, modern-day Greece. So they get on a boat from there, travel over to here, Macedonia, make the trip eventually back to Antioch. So notice what's happened so far. The first trip was just right here in Asia. The second trip pulls in Macedonia. Paul's third trip Kind of the same deal. Go back to Macedonia, to Corinth, to Athens, all these places they'd been before. Go there one more time. So now turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. We're going to pick up at verse number 23. Paul says, but... Now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, the regions of Asia Minor and Macedonia, and since I have longed for many years to come see you, I hope to see you in passing as I go on to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while." Now, for the longest time, I couldn't figure out what Paul's fascination with Spain was. Why Spain? Why is he trying to go to Spain? And one day, I was uh, looking at a map, and it dawned on me why Paul wanted to go to Spain. And I want, you to, I want to show this to you. So again, here's Israel. 
It had started here in Jerusalem. Uh, Antioch is up here. The first trip had gone through Syria. The second trip had taken in uh, Macedonia. So if he's gone here to Turkey, gone to Macedonia, where's the next logical place he's going to go? To Italy, to Rome. But apparently, as you read the book of Romans, there's already a church in Rome. In fact, contrary to, to some teaching, it probably wasn't began or started by Peter. Um, nobody really knows who started the church in Rome. There's a good chance it was just average Joe Christians that will never know their name this side of eternity who traveled on business or in life to Rome and started a church there. What seems to be happening is that Paul has never met these, these believers, and so he's writing the book of Romans. He's spelling out his theology and his doctrine and his teaching in great detail. He's laying the groundwork so that when he gets to Rome, they're not like, who are you? He's, he's giving them a little primer, a, a, a Paul 101. Here's what I teach. And what he's wanting them to do is, to, is when he gets there to, to fellowship with them, but have them help him get to... Oh, back, back to the other one. Spain. If, you, if you're here in Jerusalem or in Antioch, and you want to get on a boat, and you want, to go as, you want to go to the ends of the earth, you want to go as far as you can on a boat, where are you going to go? You're going to go to Spain. And so Paul's writing this letter to, to the Romans because churches have already been planted here, churches have already been planted here, churches have already been planted here. Paul, Paul says... That, the work has already been done. The church has already been established. It's been started. I got to get to Spain. Now, do we know if Paul ever got to Spain? We don't. Um, from the, bi the biblical account, there's no record that Paul ever, ever made it there. Um, but it is possible that maybe he did. But what are, you, what are we seeing here? The kingdom of God started out small. It started out like a mustard seed. Sort of like, like a little bit of leaven that you stick in, you know, 50 pounds of flour. And it's growing, and it's spreading, and it's growing. Now, we don't have as much details on the rest of the, the apostles, um, what they did. But I want to show you a map, and this is according to church history, um, where each of these, these men were martyred, where they died. Um, most of them ministered in several places. But I just want to show you the next map here, look at here. We, well, we know James, actually both James, both Jameses died in Jerusalem. John died on the Isle of Patmos. Thaddeus was in Turkey. Uh, Andrew was here in, Macedo in uh, Macedonia. Peter was crucified in Rome. Philip in Egypt. Matthew in Ethiopia. Bartholomew and Thomas, it seems, both uh, were martyred in India. And Simon the Zealot in Mauritania. I mean, what, what does zealot mean? Zealot means like you know, he was a political activist. He was a political zealot. Man, you turn one of those guys on fire, he's going to go, I mean, he, he couldn't have gone any farther than he did. I mean, this, this thing, this thing is growing. It's expanding. It started small, but it just keeps moving forward and going forward. Now turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's probably just one page if you've got a paper Bible in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
verse number 26. Paul's writing to those people in, in Macedonia, on that, on that peninsula, in Corinth. He says, For consider your calling, brothers, or, or when you were called, the moment of your calling, the moment of your salvation. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you. It's like Paul just tells them like it is. Uh, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. They were just average Joes. They were like the disciples were, fishermen and tax collectors and religious zealots and just normal people. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is God chose, it was His purpose, He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, or the people and institutions that think they are something, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul's saying, we're all a bunch of nobodies. We're all a bunch of just regular people. And God did that on purpose. God didn't, God didn't assemble a team of cultural rejects because that's all that would follow him. God said, I'm going to do something miraculous with people who are just ordinary people, people who aren't status people. I mean, you, you look around this room, and yeah, we're, you know, we're a bunch of good people, but I don't see any senators or ambassadors or, you know, I mean, we're just, it's just us. And God does that on purpose. Why? So that all the glory goes to him, so that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So that we look back and we say, this whole thing started like, like planting a mustard seed in the ground. This was statistically impossible. So it'd be like a 16 seed winning the whole tournament. I mean, that just that cannot happen unless God is in it. In the second century, there was uh, one of the church fathers named Origen. Who was, who was corresponding and, and writing um, with a man named Celis. And so this man, Celis, was, uh, he was an opponent of the church. But I want, I want to read to you how he described the, uh, the early church in the second century, uh, of which Origen apparently did not dispute his description. This is kind of a long quote, but you'll get it. Uh, he's referring to these Christians. He's writing to the emperor, uh, Marcus Aurelius, about who these people were. Um, in some private homes, we find people who work with wool and rags and cobblers, that is, the least cultured and most ignorant kind. Before the head of the household, they dare not utter a word, but as soon as they can take the children aside or some women who are as ignorant as they are, they speak wonders. If you really wish to know the truth, leave your teachers and your father and go with the women and the children to the women's quarters or to the cobbler's shop or to the tannery, and there you will learn the perfect life. 
It is thus that these Christians find those who will believe them. Sellus, second century critic of Christians. He's criticizing the Christians that they were just cobblers and people who, you know, cleaned and worked with wool and just normal people. And the kingdom is growing and it's spreading, but it's still in its infancy. In fact, the growth is at a rate that is unprecedented. Historian Rodney Stark estimates that the church during the first two centuries grew at a rate of 40% per decade. You say, that doesn't sound like very much. How would you like your money to grow for 200 years at 40% a decade? You would end up with a lot of money. Be rich. So the church continues to grow. The, The church is established in Rome But those are not the only places where the church is established. As the church grew, and and as we can see today, looking back, you you, you go through your your phone book and your Google and you look up churches and you see that there are all these different branches. So when the church began, there were just one. The first major divide was between uh, uh, the church and the Coptic Christians, uh, the the Western church and the Coptic Christians. The Coptic church grew out out of Egypt, um, they separated from, from the Catholic or the main, the main church around 451. Uh, today, there's an estimated 8 to 13 million Coptic Christians. Um, what did they split over? Uh, they split over whether or not Jesus has one nature or two natures. The, the, the Coptics held to that Jesus, and this is very fine theological detail. It's not really things that matter that much. The, the Coptics held that Jesus had one nature that was both human and divine. Um, the rest of the church said that he has two natures in one person, um, a, a divine nature and a human nature. And it was over that that they, they parted company. So the Coptics, if you ever hear anything about Coptics, those are uh, full-fledged real Christians. The other main branch is, would be the Eastern Orthodox or just the Orthodox Church. Um, whereas the, the Western church, the, the Catholic church grew out of Rome, um, the Orthodox grew out of Constantinople, um, Istanbul, Turkey today. Um, they split. A lot of things happened. We could do a whole thing on the Great Schism, but it's kind of boring, uh, of 1054. There's estimated 250 million Eastern... <laughs> Our historian is like, it's not boring. Uh, it's... <laughs> It's not. It's, it's boring for this city. Um, 250 million Eastern Orthodox Christians today. And so the church grows, and the tree grows, and the leaven spreads. And today, according to uh, Pew Research, they estimate there are 2.3 billion Christians in the world today. Now, those are people who call themselves Christians. A lot of those are cultural Christians. Um, But the reality is that there are a lot of Christians today. That's about 31% of the population would identify as Christians. And as the church continues to grow, one more graphic. The church continues to grow. Here's, Here's what the next, between now and uh, this is all pure research. 
how they are, are seeing the growth trends in the church. There's a cooling off in, in Europe, um, still growing, but a, which is a slower growth rate. Cooling off in Europe and in uh, Russia, uh, kind of average in the United States, some of South America, um, but the church is booming in sub-Saharan Africa, absolutely booming, and the church is growing and growing and growing and growing. Who would have believed when Jesus on that mountainside with his disciples said to them, let's go evangelize the whole world? Who would have believed that would have actually happened? But the kingdom of heaven is not Jesus breaking in in the first century and the whole world turning upside down. It's like a mustard seed. It's like he'd, he dropped this little seed of the church in Jerusalem and it grew to Samaria and Judea. It grew out to Antioch. It grew to Turkey and Macedonia and Egypt. It grew to the east and it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew all the way to Springfield, Missouri. That there are people... I mean, when Jesus said these words, his disciples didn't even know that there was a, you know, a new world. This was the known world. Paul went to, wanted to go to Spain because that was it. There wasn't, you know, you got to Spain, there was nothing else. It has reached all the way to us. God has done something marvelous. Sometimes you can read the Bible and critics of the Bible will, will say that certain things are, are revisionist history. For instance, you could look at it and say, well, we, you know, we know from the Old Testament that Jesus or that the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so later on, when Matthew wrote his gospel and all these people wrote their gospel, they didn't know where Jesus was born, but let's just, let's just put Bethlehem because that just makes everything fit together so nicely. I mean, that's how somebody with a cynical mind could look at it. But when this parable was written, there's no way to know before the fact or after the fact. It has taken a couple of millennia for the promise of the mustard seed and the promise of the yeast to take place. So we trust God as a God who does the impossible, as a Messiah who stands along the Sea of Galilee in a boat and says, the kingdom of heaven is going to start really, really, really small. But it's going to get really big. That's a God we can trust. Because it happened. And there's no other way you could explain it. It also encourages me when we have a missionary come through or a missions project that we can support you can look at the map and you can see, you know, the, king, the, the kingdom, the, the message of the kingdom has reached most of the world, but there are still places, still pockets, still tribes who have never heard. We send people to translate the Bible to people who never have it unless somebody sends them. We still give sacrificially to the work of missions. Why? <laughs> because it's victorious. 
Jesus has guaranteed the work, the spreading of his kingdom is going to be victorious, it's going to be productive, that the kingdom is going to continue to grow like a tree or like a a, a leavened lump, and it's going to continue to grow. So we give generously to missions and missionaries knowing that no dollar goes to waste because the kingdom is still growing. The kingdom is still expanding. And the God who grew it to this point is the God who is still growing it. And some of us need to today consecrate ourselves again and say, Lord, are you calling me to go? Are you calling me to be a part of this spreading and this growing? Lord, if you're calling me, I'm listening. Because the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that's the smallest of all seeds. And you plant it in the ground, but then it grows and becomes the largest in the garden. And the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who takes a little bit of leaven and hides it in three measures of flour until it has leavened the whole thing. The kingdom of God is victorious because our God is victorious. Let's pray. Lord, you are amazing. You are amazing. What you have done defies human explanation. That you took some fishermen and you took some people, not many wise or noble, you took from the cobblers and the tanneries and the women and the slaves and the poor built your kingdom. Oh, the depths of the riches and of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His ways are unsearchable to trace out. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, maybe you're here this morning and you're far from God. Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus who is growing this kingdom. Or maybe you did a long time ago, but it's been a while and you're really not living for or serving Jesus today. I want to give you the opportunity this morning to turn your life to him, to say, I'm a part of this kingdom. I believe, I accept Jesus, I repent of my sins. Today, from this day forward, I want to live for him. I want to be transformed by Jesus. Maybe you've never done that or maybe it's been a long time. While nobody's looking around, I want to give you your very first opportunity to take your first step of faith. And that's simply by raising your hand and acknowledging before God, I need you. I need a Savior. So while nobody's looking around, if that's you, take your first step of faith this morning. And right now, lift up your hands before God and say, that's me today, Jesus. I need a Savior. I need you. I believe. I repent of my sins. all stand together. And as I lead us in a concluding prayer, I want you to respond. I want you to pray. Please don't just sit there and listen. Maybe for you, God is calling you to take a greater part in this kingdom expansion. 
Maybe he's calling you to give more generously. Maybe he's calling you to go. Or maybe for you, you just need to say, Lord, I'm willing to go if you want to call me, if you want to send me. Maybe you're younger and you're willing to go. Maybe you're at another stage of life and you're at a place now you're willing to go. To pray about how God would have you to be a part of his growing kingdom. But the other response I think is just as fitting. As we saw, began, began the service, when Paul reached the end and saw all the things that God has done, it was just an overflow of praise. And maybe this morning for you, it's just an overflow of praise. You look at the plan of God and you look at how it unfolded and you say, God, only you could have done that. You are amazing. So let's together, let's lift our voices to the Lord and let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have done. You, are, you have built and you are building a kingdom. And it is marvelous and it is unexplainable outside of the sovereign powerful work of the Holy Spirit spreading and growing the church and your kingdom to this day continues to grow and to expand despite all odds to the contrary Lord you are building your church and we praise you for it and we honor you for it and Lord we say today use me Lord I'm willing to be used in any way that you want to use me if you want to send me send me I'll go. I'll go if you want me to go. I'll go to people who have never heard. I'll partner with with others. We'll share your gospel. Lord, if you want me to be more generous and give more, Lord, I'll do that. Because your kingdom is victorious and it's expanding and nothing can stop it until it reaches to the very ends of the earth. And so, Lord, help us to be a part. Produce good fruit. Build your kingdom. We pray it all in Jesus' name. being here this morning. Thanks for responding to the work of the Lord. Thank you for hearing his voice. Have a great week. Go in his grace and his peace. We'll see you next Sunday.